This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of December 6th. 2021 and it is the quarterfinal round of the 2021 professors tournament which is a tournament that has never been done before yeah i honestly had some maybe some trepidation about it i was worried that they were going to like lean a little too hard into the like oh you know they're so geeky brainy which like Professors are smart folks, but, like, also... Human beings. Human beings are smart people. People who are, like, interested in Jeopardy. People who try to get onto Jeopardy and, like, you know, like, I just... It, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a smart pool. Sure, yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I think it's been good so far. I was worried they would go, like, very gimmicky, but it's been good. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Uh, the gimmicks have been uh, at the appropriate level. You know, mm-hmm. a few a few categories specifically toward college stuff. Yeah. But not just, like, every single thing in that way. Mm-hmm. It's been really good. So, shout out to the writers. We I, I know we often talk about how good the writers are, so. Yeah. Could I derail us for a quick second before we get into the games? And also, like, while we're talking about kind of Jeopardy production, um, just note that Michael Davies, the, um, I guess he's the... Jeopardy executive producer? Is he interim? Is he just executive producer full stop? Anyway, he wrote up something that's on the Jeopardy website and put out some some tweets and um, I'm impressed. You know, mm-hmm. I think he has a grasp of what Jeopardy has been and is and could be and like a lot of respect for its legacy and like, you know, creative I- ideas, it sounds like, but like his, I, I trust him more than the most recent administration (laughs) i yes i agree i have the same feeling he's talking about making um some of their stats more public including like more making more buzzer stats publicly available which is so cool (laughs) so cool and he's acknowledging the stats work of the fan base which like official jeopardy production staff has like very much not acknowledged like the existence of the kind of intense Jeopardy fan community. Right. So that that feels like a turn to me. I mean, we're kind of the new kids. Oh yeah, for sure. We yeah, the- we are very much not the not the, the 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 Mount Rushmore of Jeopardy fandom. Yeah, so so like somebody who's been doing this for longer uh can correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that like they know that there are these kind of, you know, fan websites, accounts, spaces, but they do not acknowledge them at all. And that that felt like a, a real change to me yeah. for him to say, like, we're acknowledging the stats work some of our fans already do. Yeah, which is cool. And I don't think I, I, I mean, I, I don't know about it, really. But I mean, it ultimately, it does go to Sony, right? Sony kind of Sony calls the shots. Yeah. And if if kind of the attitude that was handed down from on high was like, we just don't talk about the fandom, right? We're we're here to make money and not 
not point people's attention to other things. Yeah. I, then that's what you do, right? Mm-hmm. So I agree. That is really cool. Yeah, if you read that article uh, that he that he tweeted, it's very cool. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very, very reassuring. And I don't know, like, I realize I do a podcast about Jeopardy, and I was on Jeopardy, and I feel very invested in Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. But, like, reading that and seeing that, it was, like, it was very, I don't know about touching, but very comforting. Yeah. To be, like... One thing in this last, you know, year and a half of absolute nonsense seems to be going in a good direction, and it feels really nice. Mm-hmm. And of course, I say that, and literally tomorrow we will get some bombshell that's like, actually, he's an <laughs> alien, and he's here to take over the world. Like, cool, great. Yeah, if it's if it's going to be a catastrophe, I guess that would be a fine one to go with. We could do that. We could do alien here to take over the world. You know what? Sure. Yeah, you know what? We're doing poorly with it. You you take it over, sir. Yeah. And I will say, like, uh, a rampant, deadly disease was not enough of a superordinate goal to unite humanity. Maybe aliens that we can point our guns at would finally do it. <laughs> Jeez Louise. This has become a, a pessimism <laughs> podcast now. We're, we're just going to, to lament. No. <laughs> yeah. This is the Jeopardyremiad. Uh, that was that was a stretch. Uh, okay, we're talking about Jeopardy. We're talking about the professors' tournament. Uh, so on Monday, December six, we have the contestants Gary Hollis, a chemistry professor from Roanoke College in Salem, Virginia; Gautam Hans, an associate clinical professor of law from Vanderbilt Law School in Nashville, Tennessee; and Hester Blum, an English professor from Penn State University in University Park. Pennsylvania. Now, little aside, I lived in Roanoke, Virginia for a few years as a child. And when I saw Roanoke College, I was like, oh, cool. And then it's in Salem. And I was like, huh. Hmm. I know that Salem was like the closest, like big city to Roanoke. So maybe that's why. But I was like, huh, I wonder why it's not actually in Roanoke. Anyway, we have the Jeopardy round categories. It's a Wonderful Life turns 75. Pope Puri. You guys, come on. <laughs> At least it's a pun. I can accept that. Elbow patches, magazines, lesser-known marsupials, and post-doctoral. Responses start with D-O and come after doctoral alphabetically. I'm a big fan of It's a Wonderful Life, so I thought that whole category was enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I was going to ask if you're... I think we've talked about it. I mean, I'm a... I'm a big fan of, like, critically examine the media you love. Um, So, A, I love It's a Wonderful Life, and B, for a while before we had kids, we would host a Christmas party where, like, a bunch of, like, seminarians and, like, young clergy people would come over and drink, like, a lot of mulled wine while watching It's a Wonderful Life and then talk about like race, class and gender and like theology and like what was wrong with them. Uh, you know, wow. like what yeah. It was it was a, a great time. We we really know how to have fun. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, no, so I, I am A, I'm a huge fan. B, there are a number of fair critiques that a person could make, but yeah, no, I I I, I love It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, we we uh, would watch it, my wife's family, they would watch it every Christmas Eve, because uh, my father-in-law is a, is a pastor, mm-hmm. and they would do the Christmas Eve service, and then we would, they'd go home, and that evening they'd watch It's a Wonderful Life until everybody fell asleep, mm-hmm. which usually happened before the movie was over. 
Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I just said there's a bunch of, you know, like problematic stuff in terms of like race, class and gender and theology. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that makes my, my stock trader husband all twitchy is like people who work in that field have all these financial regulations that they, they you know, that they need to abide by. And like mm-hmm. the whole plot of the movie is like a large, I mean, not the whole plot, but like a large amount of money gets lost, right? Like this yeah. is like the, this is like the, the, the crux of the thing, right? A large amount of money gets lost and like the bank examiner is going to find out. But then that's okay because people all come together and put together their like, you know, their dollars and coins, you yeah. know, in that climactic final scene. And the bank examiner is like, oh, well, like, I guess you've got it all now. So we're a square, you know, and like that is 100% not how that works. No, but 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 this was the 40s or whatever. Yeah. There weren't rules then. <laughs> no rules in the 40s. That's you just need you need to understand. Yeah. Um so that that's the part where where my husband's eyelid always starts twitching. It's like you can't just you can't just you can't, you can't just crowdfund to make up for the fact that you lack, you know, any kind of financial controls and you routinely like give large wads of cash to a person who has dementia. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. All right. Um, Daily Double number one is in the potpourri category at the $1,000 level, and Gary finds it at the 25th pick. He has 5000 at this point to Hester's 2600 Gautam has 3200 and Gary wagers 1500 It's reasonable. Wants to yeah. stay close to the lead, I guess, if he misses. He gets the clue. John the 23rd convened the second of these meetings, which decreed mass could be celebrated in local languages. And he gets that one correct. It is Vatican Council, the the second Vatican Council, or Vatican II is what yes. I always heard it referred to. Exactly. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, no, is it just called Vatican? Yeah. What is it? What is the I, other? Like, what's the other part of that? Because I know it is Vatican II. And it's like one of these. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think I can just call it Vatican II because there's not more than one Vatican II. Oh, no. What do we do? Yeah. I, I think I would have gotten to council eventually, but I had that same thought. Yeah, council is a pretty common term for, you know, a big church sure. meeting Thing. where momentous decisions are made, right? Like the uh, yeah. Council of Nicaea, for example. So at the end of the Jeopardy round... Hester's at 1400, Gautam's at 2200, Gary's at 7900. And we have the double jeopardy categories languages, girl groups, we get letters, African American authors, there's always room for Canada, and finals. They did well with that Canada category. I will say it was, I thought it was ran a bit easy, but yeah. they, they all, they got all that. Mm-hmm. Alex would be proud. Yep. Mostly Hester. Hester got four of the five. That's true. Yeah. Way to go, Hester. Yeah. Uh, we have a Jeopardy-related triple stumper in the girl groups category at the $2,000 level. Kristen Stewart and Dakota Fanning starred in a 2010 movie about these rocker girls. Hester guessed who are the Blackhearts, uh, but that's the Runaways. Those are the Runaways. And I, if I recall, Jackie Fox. Jackie Fox. A four-game champion? I think that's correct. Yeah, I think I think it was four. Yeah, four game champion Jackie Fox was a member of the Runaways. Mm-hmm. Shout out Jackie Fox, who apparently her job now. I follow her on Twitter. Her job now is making board games, which is that's just cool. So cool! Wow. Yeah. Anyway, 
yeah if you don't if you don't, haven't looked into jackie fox she's pretty cool mm-hmm. we have another triple stumper in the or we get letters category at the $1,600 level. German musicians use B for B-flat and this for B-natural. No one no one took the guess of the letter H. Because if you know your musical scale, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. But Germans use H for B-natural. And there's a lengthy explanation as to why. But you can remember that simply uh, by knowing that Bach could spell his name musically. Mm-hmm. Because H is in the German musical alphabet. Yeah, shout out to the Classical Kids albums and Mr. Bach Comes to Call uh, for me knowing that piece of information. <laughs> well, there we go. Yeah. There's no wrong way to know something. Yep. Seriously, though, like, you know, people who have, like, maybe early elementary age kids, like, look those up. I think that you can, let's see, I think they might be, like, on, like, streaming music kinds of services. I don't know, they're, they're good. They're good. They're, like... They're like little kind of audio play things about, you know, dramatizing famous composers. They're fun. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in the languages category. It's at the $1,600 level. Uh, It's pick number 15. Hester finds it. She is at 5,000. Guttum's at 3,000. And Gary is up at 12,700. And she wagers 2,000. I personally would have gone for more, uh, you know, with, with first place that far away. Uh, she gets the clue, it's the group of 500 or more related African languages that include Tosa and Swahili. And she took a long time to get there, but she did just at the last second get in with what is Bantu. Mm-hmm. Bantu is often a term used to refer to basically any native African of, like, the southern half of the continent. Mm-hmm. Not not necessarily the best term. Mm. But, yeah. But it's, like... It's acceptable still. Mm. Yeah. Is there... Is there a better term? <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially, like, for the language family. Not not necessarily, okay. no. Um, although, I, I, you know, I'm not a linguist. Maybe we could talk to Anarchy about this. But my understanding is that, like, most... Like, a lot of the Bantu languages aren't necessarily related to each other. It's huh. just... Okay. It's just what white colonizers referred to all of the African, like, native languages as. Oh. Hmm. Okay. So I I might be I might be totally off base. If there are people who know better than me and I'm and I'm wrong, let me know. Mm-hmm. So. And daily double number three is in the we get letters category. Um, this is uh th- in this category, every correct response is just a single letter. But uh, the contestants weren't told that. Uh, they had to figure it out. It's at the twelve hundred dollar level at the twenty third pick, and Gary finds it. He's at eighteen thousand seven hundred at this point to Hester's seven thousand and Gautam's five thousand. He wagers just seven hundred. Um, smart, I think. You yeah. know, he doesn't want to. You know, he's in a pretty solid lock position and doesn't want to jeopardize that. Jeopardize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good one. And you don't win the money in a tournament, so it doesn't matter how much you win if yep. you win. Uh, so he gets the clue. Tandy Newton played Condoleezza Rice in this film, and he correctly responds, "What is W?" Um, Although I really, I think he pronounced it more like W. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Gary is in a locked position at twenty-one thousand. Hester is at eighty-six thousand, and Gotham's at fifty-four hundred. And before we go to Final Jeopardy, I man, we're talking a lot about this particular episode. Uh, I saw some some hubbub on Twitter, uh, especially dealing with the Jeopardy fan, about like Mayim Bialik not commenting on a player being in a lock position going into Final Jeopardy. 
Like, mm. like the person saying like, oh, Mayim doesn't know how to like talk about contestants' positions, and she, you know, there's a there's a player in a lock position, and she'll say like, but everyone's in it. Hmm. And Andy responded saying like, yes. Because that's a standards and practices issue of, like, if the player in first place doesn't actually realize it, they might miss wager. Yeah. And, and, and you know, that that would be unfair for the host to point out strategy ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Which I agree with. Except... Except that um, hosts routinely do, though, right? Yeah, except that I, I was w- recently watching one of my episodes... Where the one like where I had a lock position, and Alex clearly said that I was in a lock position before mm-hmm. Final Jeopardy. <laughs> like he's he just said it out loud. Yep. <laughs> so I mean, it's different, I guess, for Alex Trebek. But um, I would ag- I agree with with Andy. Yeah, the host shouldn't say things that might clue a contestant in on strategy. But also, Alex just totally did it. Anyway, yeah. uh, we have the final Jeopardy category, Aesthetic Movements, and the clue. This turn-of-the-century movement was al- alternately known around the world as Nieuwe Kunst and Modernista. And Gautam wrote, what is avant-garde? Which is, I think, a good guess. Um, but that is incorrect. And he wagered everything but a dollar. Hester got it correct with, what is Art Nouveau? And she wagered 3400 uh, so she moves up to 12,000. Gary wrote, what is Art Deco? Which is incorrect. Uh, and he only wagered 1,000, not risking his luck at all. Um, mm-hmm. So he definitely wins. But uh, Hester has a potential wild card spot with 12,000. Did Mayim, in fact, say everyone is in it? I don't know, but it's something, yeah. I mean, I feel like in a tournament where there are wild card slots, everyone is in it. Maybe not for first place in this game, but certainly for advancing to the next round. Yeah. Oh, no, I agree. Yeah, I think, like, I think the person who was criticizing was wrong. Yeah. Like, it just, just they were just in the wrong. Mm-hmm. So on Tuesday, we have the contestants Katie Reed, an associate professor of musicology from Cal Woo! State Fullerton. <laughs> Hooray for musicology. <laughs> John Harkless, an associate professor of chemistry from Howard University in Washington, D.C., and Marty Knipe, an elementary science education professor from Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona. And our Jeopardy round categories are Before He Was President, Nonfiction, Office Hours, uh, that's ours like the possessive pronoun, Pop Culture, Mountains, and In the Curriculum. Responses will be made up of letters, I'm not sure if it's in In the Curriculum or if it's in the Curriculum. I, I think it's the curriculum. Yeah. That they drew the, the letters from. I think that's correct. I got thrown by how the quotation marks are arranged mm-hmm. on J Archive. Mispronouncing things because you have learned them by reading them is just fine. <laughs> and uh, the author of Between the World and Me pronounces his name Tanahasi Coates. You would not know that from looking at it because the spelling. Looks like it should be Ta-Nehisi Coates. It's like with an I there, but Ta-Nehisi Coates is how he how he pronounces his name. Katie knew it, but you know, I think had had seen it had seen it written and maybe didn't know the pronunciation. Right, and above that, the the clue the clue above that that was in the nonfiction category. Um, the immortal life of this woman tells how her HeLa cells aided medical research without her knowledge or consent. That's Henrietta Lacks. That is just like mm-hmm. just a depressing and infuriating story yep about henrietta lax 
Mm-hmm. And like that that's a name that people should just know. Yeah. I don't want to get too into it because we've already done a bunch of downers today. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, yes, we sure have. <laughs> Daily Double number one is in the nonfiction category up at the $400 level. It's pick number 16. Marty finds it. 1400 John is at 2400 Katie is at 2800 And wagers uh, 1000 It's a clue. This best-selling memoir about a woman's quest to find balance in her life was published in Spanish as Come Reza Ama. It's correct with what is Eat, Pray, Love. Which anytime Eat, Pray, Love comes up in Jeopardy, I have to stop myself from answering quickly because I always want to say live, laugh, love because of that stupid, like, (laughs) dumb, generic, like, you know, (laughs) Bed, Bath, and Beyond thing that every... Mm -hmm you know 20 something girl had in her college mm-hmm. house or whatever yeah. <laughs> like it just i my in my brain that is always what that is yeah anyway live laugh love yes anyway at the end of the jeopardy <laughs> round uh marty is uh up to the lead at 4800 john is at 2400 and katie is at 4400 and we get the double jeopardy categories i've got a theory name the musical mythology they earned a phd Russian history and culture, and 10-letter words. So in my ongoing far-fetched claims that the Jeopardy writers are sending secret messages to us specifically, you all know what a fan I am of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And if you want to name the musical from wh- in which you find the song, I've Got a Theory, it is the Buffy musical Once More with Feeling. So clearly, clearly, that's for me. Or, or there's a Buffy fan or they just happened to have juxtaposed those two category titles. Coincidence, I think, is never the most likely explanation. Yeah. Occam's razor. Yes. That's that's what that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think that at the very least, there's like a big Buffy fan on the writing staff who's like, let's get a, I've got a theory and name the musical next to each other just to amuse, it, you know, the sure. people who get that yeah. joke. Yeah. The very deep cut. Right, the likelihood is more that, like, we all share, like, a general knowledge base mm-hmm. and enjoyment of things. Yeah. I don't know, I liked this board. This is a fun It board. was a great that, board. That mythology category was uh, was pretty good. I thought it was properly leveled. Was mm, yes. And I will have you know, I got all five of the musical questions. Congratulations. Thank you. I felt pretty good about myself because uh, I really, for, for a music teacher, I don't know Broadway musicals that well. Mm-hmm. If you didn't know the $400 level, like maybe just tap the unsubscribe. No, just kidding. You can stick <laughs> around. <laughs> uh, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy and hungry and I'm not throwing away my shot. That's Hamilton. I, I would hope that most of our listeners are familiar at this point. If, if nothing else, at least with that line, even yeah. if you've never, never listened to the music, never seen the show, at least aware of that line, it has become so, such a big part of like recent popular culture. Yeah. I did not get all five musicals. I can hear the song. I could have danced all night. And I was like, oh, it's one of those like big kind of golden era musicals. Which one is it? And I could not remember. But it's My Fair Lady. Katie knew it. Knew it. Yeah. Katie did pretty well. Mm-hmm. In this category she was the only one to get any of them mm. and i mean she's a musicologist so if there's going to be a music category hopefully she's the one to get it mm-hmm. although i will say the musicologists i dealt with in in uh, especially grad school probably not big broadway fans 
They were into the more obscure things. Anyway. Daily Double number two is in I've Got a Theory at the $2,000 level. John finds it at the fifth pick. Uh, he has 5600 at this point. He's tied with Marty. Katie is trailing with 4400 And John wagers 2000 the true value of the clue, and gets the clue, sometimes called the theory of everything. It says all the objects in our universe are made of vibrating filaments of energy. And he knows that that one is string theory. Mm-hmm. And daily double number three is pick number 29. It's in the Russian history and culture category at the $1,600 level. Katie finds it. She has made a push. So she is in the lead right now at 13600 John is at 12000 and Marty's at 10400 It's very close. And she wagers 1600 the value of the clue. And she gets the clue. In the early 1900s, members of the faction that opposed Lenin were called these, meaning one of the minority. And she guesses the only term that she could probably think of of that time. And she said, who are the Bolsheviks? But no, it is in fact the other side, the Mensheviks. Mm. So she drops down there, but then she picks up the $2,000 clue, Solzhenitsyn, with the Gulag Archipelago. Yep. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Katie has made it back to the lead. She's at 14,000. John is at 12,000. Marty's at 10,400. And we have the final Jeopardy category, Old Geographic Names. And the clue, this term, once used for Western North Africa, is still used today in the name of a primate from that region. I liked that you could access this one via either of two deep dives we've done on this podcast, one that Kyle did and one that I did. Um, So um, Marty has the correct response. What is Barbary? Kyle's done a deep dive on the Barbary pirates. Mm -hmm. I have done one on Gibraltar, where you will find Barbary apes or macaques. Both of those, I think, helped me to pull this. And uh, Marty's wagered 3,000. That brings her up to 13,400. John started to write something that starts with B. Looks like he was maybe heading for Barbary, but hard to say. Um, But ended up crossing it out and putting what is rhesus. Mm -hmm. Also an important monkey to know. Uh, (laughs) Among the important monkeys to know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is it a monkey? Is it an ape? I'm not sure. But it's it's like the RH factor is from from rhesus rhesus monkeys monkeys monkey rhesus monkey yes uh but not not the correct one in this case he's wagered eight thousand that drops him down to four thousand and katie tried what is bonobo also a fine primatology guess but you know doesn't fit the western north africa part um she's wagered two thousand so that drops her down just to twelve thousand so marty is our winner katie's in very good position for the wild card spots john's less likely but he's at four thousand so we'll see how the week goes yeah in fact uh katie is tied uh with uh hester right yes for the for the top spot Mm -hmm. uh so on wednesday we have the contestants Ashley Lawrence Sanders, an assistant professor of U.S. and African-American history from the University of Colorado. Woo. Woo. Uh, Again, not my alma mater, but still Colorado. I'll I'll go for it. Lisa Dresner, an associate professor of writing studies from Hofstra University in Hempstead, New York. And Sam Boutry, an associate professor of operations research from Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, which is really cool to me. Mm Mm-hmm. And we have the Jeopardy round categories found in King Tut's tomb. The rules of the game. 
Company Colors, More Than 100, Dealing with the Environment, and Prepositional Phrases. In the rules of the game, we had a be more specific where I thought I would have completely frozen up at the $1,000 level. While trying to pin your opponent, you can't get him in a hold below the waist. Lisa rang in and said, what is wrestling? Mayim asked her to be more specific, and she did come up with a correct response. Greco-Roman wrestling, I guess, is what they were looking for here. Yeah, I I think I would have ended up there only because that is the only more specific kind of wrestling that I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> sumo, sumo wrestling. Oh, I guess there's that. But I, I okay, that didn't even come to mind <laughs> because yeah. I know it's not that. Yeah. Daily Double number one comes up at the $1,000 level of dealing with the environment at the 22nd pick. Uh, Ashley finds it. She has 1400 to Sam's 5400 and Lisa's 1400 And she wagers 1000 We'll probably have made it a true Daily Double, I would think. But she wagers 1000 and her clue is a 2007 column by the New York Times. Thomas Friedman is credited as the origin of this three-word term. And she goes right down to the last second and then finally blurts out what is the Green New Deal just as the buzzer sounds. And my guess is that they had to play the tape back, which if you're a casual viewer, you may not know that they will go back and like review like frame by frame to determine whether you I think started your answer before the buzzer sounded. Yeah. They try to make it as consistent and objective as they can. It's not about, you know, just sort of being flexible or, you know, allowing leeway. That time limit they are they have a they have a protocol. Sure. Right. I feel like I've heard people say, Oh, you know, like they must have liked her because they let her get it in later. You know, like not in this particular case but like i i've heard i've heard claims that like they're more strict with some people than others and i don't believe that's the case no i mean standards and practice like there are very strict laws about the production of the show and the fairness toward the the contestants Mm -hmm. that would be a real stupid thing to get hit with a major major like criminal lawsuit over Mm -hmm. so at the end of the jeopardy round Sam has uh, has the lead with 8,000, Ashley's at 4,000, Lisa's at 1,400, and we have the double jeopardy categories, literary professors, triple rhyme time, islands in the chain, names and places of 2021, a little math in your movie, and ennial response will do. Uh, <laughs> ennial, E-N-N-I-A-L, in quotation marks. Sam ended up running that triple rhyme time yeah, category. he crushed it. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, and every single time he, at the, you know, after he gave a correct response, he seemed like, oh, that was really, that was really hard. Let's go somewhere else. And like, I, I didn't realize until just now that he'd run it because he kept going away from it and then back to it. Yeah, but he, he did great. But by the way, did you ever watch Quantum Leap? Um, Like maybe an episode. Okay. Um, what was the, I need to look this up because I'm just remembering it now. What was the? What was the character's name? Like, Scott Bakula's name. Like, the character's name. Oh, I don't know. Sam Beckett. It is Sam Beckett. And I... Because he reminds me so much of Scott Bakula that I was like, is that... Is that Sam from Quantum Leap? Am I remembering that name right? Did he leap into this body and that's why we have this man on Jeopardy now? (laughs) Anyway... (laughs) 
anyway, I, that's this is totally irrelevant to anything, but he just t- completely like made me think so much of Scott Bakula. <laughs> that, let's get back to Jeopardy. Daily Double number two is in the literary professors category. It's early. It's pick number two uh, at the $1,600 level. Lisa finds it. She is at 1400 behind Ashley's 4000 and Sam's 8000 and she bets it all as well as she... Well, she should probably bet 2000 but she makes it a true Daily Double, which is fine. And she gets a clue. In an 1893 story, he is described as the organizer of half that is evil and of nearly all that is undetected in London. And she gets it correct with who is Professor Moriarty. Mm-hmm. I have just started reading a Sherlock Holmes story for the first time in my life, and um, it's good. It's like compelling and like the language holds up it doesn't feel like super archaic like i'm you know trying to work my way through something really you know kind of old where i don't know like i'm just it is enjoyable now which surprised me also i was worried that you know maybe sherlock holmes was so familiar that i would not be surprised by anything uh in it and I'm reading a study in Scarlet, and I got about halfway yeah. through, and then I turned the page, and it's like, you know, 20 years earlier in Utah, and I'm like, what? <laughs> um, yeah. There's a there's a cut to like this whole like plot with like Mormons. With like, yeah, with with the Mormons going out to Utah, and there's yeah. a there the first line of that cut is like so interesting to me. I don't remember it exactly, but it's like. Like beyond the barren salt flats, there's a like a a wasteland that is uninhabitable. But this is where we find you know so and so, and it's like it's so good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, it's good that you're starting with a study a study in Scarlet because that's the first one. Yes, um, I <laughs> I did my research. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I totally agree, and that's why like I don't feel bad about being kind of a, a Sherlock like fanboy because it's like. This is all, it, it's very good. Yeah, it's good. And like, I was like, oh, you know, like, will everything in here be just so familiar that I'll be bored by it? Like Utah? What? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Apparently not. Apparently there are some things about Sherlock Holmes that you don't pick up just from, you know, being a person who, you know, lives in 2021. Right. Um, yeah. 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 And like you said, the language, it's not Victorian. I mean, yeah. it's a little Victorian, but like, it's... It's modern enough, to, like you said, mm-hmm. to be accessible. So. Yep. Yeah. Highly recommend, so far at least. So uh, Daily Double number three is in the Names and Places of 2021 category at the $800 level. And Ashley finds it at the 30th pick, very last clue of the round. She's at 5200 to Sam's 22400 and Lisa's 6400 Even if she made it a true daily double, it would still be a runaway for Sam. So what we're looking for here is like to position for a wild card slot. So she wagers 2000 and gets the clue in September, the last piece of a gas pipeline from Russia to Germany opposed by the US was put in place under this sea. She tries what is the Black Sea, but the correct response here is the Baltic Sea. So she drops Mm -hmm. down. Yeah, you gotta think about what's (laughs) what sea is between Germany and yeah. In Russia. And mm-hmm. you also got to remember that Russia has that little enclave next to the Baltic states. Mm, yeah. Like totally separated. It's so, it's weird. Russia's weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Sam is in a lock position. Way to go, Scott Bakula. 
at 22,400. Lisa is at 6,400. Ashley is at 3,200. And we get the final Jeopardy category, 20th century people. And the clue, General MacArthur, hey, I talked about him recently, mm-hmm. said this man's death by violence is one of those bitter anachronisms that seems to refute all logic. And if you listen to my deep dive, Father Flanagan, I mentioned uh, in the quiz about General MacArthur, and hopefully that would have put you into the, th- the mindset of like happenings in Asia, right? Because he's all about Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, that might have helped point you to the right thing if you were unsure but this was a triple stumper which i I thought was kind of interesting uh ashley wrote who is john f kennedy of course death by violence makes sense uh but that is incorrect she wagered all of her 3200 lisa put who is dr martin luther king jr who i think is a a, who is the real kind of neg bait there Mm -hmm. uh but that is incorrect and she also wagered everything sam bet nothing which is smart because like you don't need to if you're in a lock position in a tournament game uh, and he also wrote who is John F. Kennedy, but that is Mahatma Gandhi. Yes. My husband watching with me had not realized that Gandhi was assassinated. Oh, yeah. That's not as emphasized, I think, in U.S. history education. Yeah. You know, we had this kind of domestic like era of assassinations, like of all, like so many high profile assassinations in such a short span of time that I think it's understandable that everyone's mind jumped right to there to you know to the like u.s 1960s mm-hmm. especially with like general macarthur as an american person right. right yeah yeah so i get it but i did think of gandhi so i was you know mm-hmm. sad about gandhi but pleased with myself right, right <laughs> of course yeah <laughs> yeah so on thursday we have the contestants julia williams an english professor from rose hullman institute of technology in Terre haute indiana Ed Hashima, a history professor from American River College in Sacramento, California, and Ramon Guerra, an associate professor of English, American Literature, and Latino Studies from University of Nebraska at Omaha. And we have the Jeopardy Round categories, Prof Talk, Around the Mediterranean, What Does It Prevent, All on Your Head Now, College Sports, and Lit characters, bad choices. I thought the what does it prevent category was hilarious. It was pretty funny, yeah. (laughs) In particular, going from the $400 clue, uh, which was bounce dryer sheets, symbolized by a t-shirt and a lightning bolt that was static cling. Julia got that one, too. (laughs) So at the $600 level, the compound levonorgestrel in products like Mirena, and Ed got that one. It's pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they just named something. It gave a tiny bit of context and you had to say what it prevents uh, yeah. from, you know, <laughs> all the way from static cling to pregnancy. Um, yep. yep. Was fun. All things are trivia. Yes. Yes, indeed. Very enjoyable juxtaposition. Yeah. Uh, from the prof talk at the $600 level. I've known a I've known a good number of people who are ABD. ABD who is yep. a, mm-hmm. a a PhD candidate who's finished all the coursework, but not that last bit of writing is an ABD. This it's all but dissertation. Mm-hmm. I've known known a good number of ABDs. <laughs> I was working on a master's degree, so I didn't have to worry about that. But that is not where they were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know one person who was kind of an eccentric character who legend had it that his dissertation was finished and in a drawer but 
He just, the just, the like, part didn't... of his life he was in was feeling pretty good. And, and, just... <laughs> and he was, you know, not quite ready for the next chapter. So he was just, you know, just just riding it on out. Um, just didn't want to be a doctor when you could be. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Whatever. Uh, Daily Double number one is in the Around the Mediterranean category at the $800 level. Ed finds it at pick number 24. He's at 6000 Ramon's at 3600 Julia's at 1400 and he wagers 1200 He gets the clue. This city can be said to be twice on the Mediterranean coast, one as a world capital, the other in Lebanon. And uh, he does not know it. He guesses what is Beirut, which is the capital of Lebanon. Uh, but that is Tripoli. Apparently there's a Tripoli in Lebanon, and I, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. It is the capital of Tunisia. No, it's the capital of uh, Libya. God, it's the capital of Libya. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Ramon is at 3,800, Ed is up to 8,200, and Julia is at 1,800. We get the double Jeopardy categories, Yiddish theater, science vocabulary, state songs, describing the TV drama in recent years, and show me your PHD. Each response will have PHND in that order. Flashback to one of your episodes with that two thousand mm-hmm. dollar level of state songs. One of Colorado's state songs is where these wildflowers grow, and they had a picture. Ramon rang in, I think, thinking he recognized the flower, and then realized he didn't think he had it, um, but said it anyway. What are lilacs? And then that turned into a triple stumper. Those are columbines, and that was a daily double in one of them. Yes, I remember that. And I mean, Ramon teaches in in Nebraska. I thought of the three of them, knowing, you know, that Columbines are associated with Colorado would have been, he'd have had the best shot. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, Julia got, from Indiana, got the Mm -hmm. state song of Indiana at the $1,600 level. The state song of Indiana is titled On the Banks of This River Far Away. That's the Wabash. She knew that one. Yep. I was amused by a wrong guess at the $400 level of describing the TV drama. Uh, the clue is, it's a Mads, 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 Mads <laughs> Mickelson world. The doctor will eat you now. And Ramon Reagan had said, what is house? <laughs> Which I guess he was working off of doctor. Um, sure. <laughs> they were looking for Hannibal. <laughs> yeah. That's a very different spin on house. Yeah. Similarly, I saw where Julia was coming from with her guess at the $1,200 level. Um, the clue there was Simon and Daphne streaming steamily. Episodes included The Duke and I and Art of the Swoon. She rang in and said, what is Fraser?" which does have a character named Daphne and some, you know, like sort of stilted language uh, from time to time, certainly. But they were looking for Bridgerton. Yeah. 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 Slightly different show. Yeah. So just some uh. just some understandable and delightful uh, incorrect guesses, I thought. Daily Double number two is in the Yiddish theater category at the $800 level, and Ed finds it as the seventh pick. He has 10600 at this point to Ramon's 1800 and Julia's 3800 and he wagers 2400 And his clue is, a surprise New York hit in 2018 was a Yiddish-language fiddler on the roof. This song becomes Wenn ich bin a Rothschild. I'm sure I got that Yiddish wrong. I'm very sorry to any Yiddish speakers. Um, but Ed knows the correct response. If I were a rich man. 
And Daily Double number three is in the science vocabulary category at the $1,200 level. Ed finds it at pick number 28. It's very late in the round. He is at 26,200. Ramon is at 1,400 and Julie is at 5,800. So he doesn't really have to do anything. I mean, you have to wager $5 on a daily double. So he wagers 1,200, eh, whatever. Gets a clue. Specific this is the ratio of a substance's density to that of a standard substance, often water. Uh, and he gets it correct with what is specific gravity. What is gravity? That double self-correction happened in the state songs category at the $400 level. It was the $400 level. Lyrics from this Louisiana state song include, you make me happy when skies are gray. It was the very first pick of the round. Uh, And Julia rang in and said, don't take my sunshine away. What is don't take my sunshine away? You are my sunshine. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the the what is from the second phrasing got carried, you know, I think counted, counted. counted, And that, that final response was correct. And she got it in just in time. So... That was delightful, I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Ed is in a lock position with 27,400. Julie is at 5,800. Ramon has 1,400. And we have the final Jeopardy category, 1950s Public Works. And the clue dubbed the greatest construction show on earth. When completed, it connected Minnesota to Montreal. Ramon did not come up with anything. He had a letter written down... J-Archive couldn't make it out. I don't I don't remember what it was. And then crossed out. He wagered 1400 so he drops to zero. Julia tried what is the interstate highway system. It's not a bad shot in the dark. Um, she's wagered 2000 That drops her to 3800 And Ed came up with what is the St. Lawrence Seaway, which I heard of for the very first time when I watched this episode. But that is correct. Oh. So good for Ed. I yeah yeah. We all have gaps. That's one of yeah. mine, I guess. So Ed has wagered forty seven hundred. That brings him up to thirty two thousand one hundred. Makes him a semifinalist. Yes, indeed. Yeah, we have some low scores at the end of the game for both. You know, Julie and Ramon. Uh, it's unlikely that they would move on mm-hmm. with those scores. Yes, but at this point, we should have. The top two. There are four wild card spots, so the top two are locked in. Mm-hmm. Which um, I believe are Katie uh, Reed and Hester yep. Blum. Yep, the with twelve thousand. Twelve thousand apiece. Yeah, musicologist. Woo. And on Friday we have the contestants Deborah Steinberger, an associate professor of French literature from the University of Delaware in Newark, Elisa Hovey a botany professor from Warren Wilson College in Asheville, North Carolina, and J.P. Allen, a professor of business and innovation from the University of San Francisco. And we have the Jeopardy! round categories Winter Holidays, Texting Shorthand, Hey, Shakespeare, who said that? Yacht Rock Sails Again, U.S. Geography, and Get Your Somethings in a Row. So it's like a tri-bond category, really. But with a hidden theme. Yeah, of things that sound like ducks. <laughs> yes. JP, I think, missed the theme hilariously. I I, I was a big fan of, of JP. No disrespect intended to JP, but like once you've seen 
you know, discerned what the hidden gimmick of the category is. These misses are funny. At the $600 level, biggest to smallest, Uno, Tarot, Pinochle. JP tried what are cards. That's incorrect. Deborah got it with what are decks. Mm -hmm. Get your decks in a row. And then at the 800 in Royal Succession, Cambridge, Sussex, York. Uh, JP tried what are heirs to the English throne. Uh, That is... Not correct, and Deborah got the rebound on this one also. Uh, that is Dukes. dukes. Yes. Get your Dukes in a row. Um, <laughs> and once she uh, kind of revealed all of those sounded like ducks, you could sort of see JP like, realize and react. <laughs> yes, would have helped up, up yeah. to that point. Mm-hmm. The texting shorthand category, nobody says any of these. Nobody says any of those. None of them. It's, it's not texting shorthand. It's just, like, abbreviations for mm-hmm. phrases. But abbreviations that people don't use. <laughs> I well, mean, the yeah. phrases people use, but, yeah, like... that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, it's just we took some things and we made them into abbreviations. Can you guess what they are? Yeah. That category can go away because they've done this texting thing before. Writers, mm-hmm. you can just leave it behind. <laughs> you know what would be actually edifying potentially helpful even to uh <laughs> to to the generations that tend to watch jeopardy it's like to put an emoji up and be like what do the young people mean by this one <laughs> <laughs> stop putting up like dhyb and having people guess don't hold your breath like nobody does that nobody, nobody. I, I mean i'm sure i'm sure a person at some point has has put dhyb for don't hold your breath but like it is not texting shorthand in common use, I would argue. Yeah, I agree. Daily Double number one is in the Hey Shakespeare, Who Said That category at the $800 level. And Deborah finds it at the 14th pick. She has 800 at this point. JP's at 4,000. Elisa's at 1,600. Uh, Deborah makes it a true Daily Double. I would go with the full 1,000 in her position. Yeah. And she gets the clue, "'Tis not to make me jealous to say my wife is fair." Feeds well, loves company, is free of speech, sings, plays, and dances well. And she gets that one correct with Othello. You should see the word jealous and remember that while it's entirely possible that Shakespeare used the word jealous in other plays, if you're being handed it as a key quote in Jeopardy, then that's an Othello quote. Yeah, 100%. Um, So at the end of the Jeopardy round... Deborah's in the lead with 6,200. JP's at 4,200. Elise is at 3,000. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. Going medieval, famous professors, big movie on campus, organ recital, where to go on sabbatical, and exam time. E-X in quotation marks. Each correct response will begin with those letters. Listeners, if you've never seen A Beautiful Mind, you should probably watch it. Not only because it's like a best picture winner, right? They won mm-hmm. best picture. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, that, as it says in the, I oh, think yeah. so. Well, it says Oscar winning. Oscar that winning. doesn't necessarily mean, mean that it won best picture. Yeah. Did it win best picture? I, th- I think it did. The $1,600 clue of famous professors. Math professor John Nash, who won a Nobel Prize for his work on game theory, was the subject of this Oscar winning film. That was a daily double in the Tournament of Champions as well as like coming up multiple times the Jeopardy writers love to go back to A Beautiful Mind and John Nash. So know that name, know the movie, be able mm-hmm. to put it together. Uh, it did win Best Picture, as well as a whole bunch of other 
Oscars, Best Director. Well, three other Oscars. Uh, which, which, to be fair, is a good, like, that's a lot. A, yes. <laughs> Most yeah, movies is. don't. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of Oscars. Um, Best Supporting Actress for Jennifer Connelly. Best Adapted Screenplay for mm. Akiva Goldsman. And then it was nominated for several more as well. That building at the $1,600 level of where to go on sabbatical, there was a picture. And then the clue was, try this city where the hi- iconic Hallgrimskirke church can be seen for miles. Maybe go look up that church. I've been seeing pictures of it, like memes of it with statistics jokes because it looks like a bell curve. Mm. <laughs> it, it, yes, it does. Yeah. That's true. Been on my social media a lot in like the last week. Some kind of weird coincidence. I don't know. Sure. Daily Double number two is in the organ recital category, but it this is about like human body organs. Uh, it's pick number 19. Elisa finds it. She is at 9,400. JP is at 12,600. Deborah is at 7,800. And she wagers 3,000. She gets the clue. The outer cortex of these paired organs contains follicles and oocytes. And she gets it correct with what are ovaries. Gives a little fist pump. Yeah, ovaries. And Daily Double number three is at the $1,200 level of exam time. And Deborah finds this one at the 26th pick. She has 10,200 to JP's 14,600 and Elisa's 16,000. She wagers 3,000 only. I think that she doesn't want to drop below. Well, no, that will take her below half of the next, the contestant above mm-hmm. her. But it also is not going to take her into first place. I, I would have gone bigger here as well. So two, two fairly conservative daily double wagers from yeah. her in this game. She gets the clue. It's an unofficial name for Britain's treasury. And she correctly responds, what is the exchequer? So that bumps her up closer, um, but still in third place. Yeah. And going into Final Jeopardy, it's actually a pretty close game. JP is in the lead at 17,400. Elisa is at 16,400. And Deborah's at 14,800. Uh, good scores all around. Mm-hmm. We get the Final Jeopardy category, 19th century British authors. And the clue, she called herself, quote, the daughter of two persons of distinguished literary celebrity in an introduction to one of her novels. Deborah began writing who is George Eliot, uh, got to George Eli, which I've never heard of. Mm-hmm. And she wagered 5,000. So she drops to 9,800. Uh, Elisa got it correct with who is Shelley, Mary Shelley, Mary Wollstonecraft mm-hmm. Shelley. Yes. And... Uh, she wagered 3600 which brought her up to 20000 I think that was a smart wager. Mm-hmm. And JP wrote, who is E. Bronte, which is, we know is incorrect, wagered 2601 uh, Another, I, I, I think it is smart to not make the cover bet here in this situation, because, mm-hmm. I mean, a, a cover bet when the person is 1,000 behind you is essentially an all-in, and there are wild card spots to consider, so yeah. I, I think it's better to bet small and, you know, end up in the position that he did because Elisa gets the uh, automatic spot. But uh, going into next week, JP has the highest wildcard score. So he's guaranteed a spot. Then mm-hmm. we get the two that are tied at 12,000 uh, from earlier in the week. And then Deborah gets the last wildcard spot. So everyone in this game moves on to next week. 
That's right. It was fun to watch them hear that news. Yeah. And reminder, in case, I mean, I'm sure all of our listeners know this, but in case you didn't and you thought otherwise, the contestants are sequestered throughout this first round, so they do not know what the wildcard standings are going into their game. Now, me... I was on the first game of the quarterfinals, so I I knew exactly where I stood as I watched all of the games happen. And while I was, you know, I, I, I love and respect all of the people I was up against, I was also like, okay, one person win big and the others need to lose big. Yep. <laughs> so that I keep Wager my Wager everything. Wager yes. everything. <laughs> or just don't get high enough, like, yep. get Final Jeopardy wrong. Like, <laughs> yep. yeah, so... So there we go. That's the week. That's the first week of the Professor's Tournament. That was a fun week. Mm. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, it was. It's. I think it's been a great week. So uh, this is the point in the middle of the episode where we take a moment, take a break, and remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables. Uh, there's, there's some content on there. Um, we've been putting our quiz questions up as soon as we finish recording so that Patreon supporters can get kind of a sneak peek of the episode that we're editing before it posts. And we're thinking about, you know, other stuff that can go on there. And the, uh, the income that we get from that helps us to offset the cost of making this podcast. The search for sound editing continues and for enough income that we can pay a sound editor from what we, from what we make instead of what we've, what we've banked. That's, uh, that also continues. So if you have a few bucks to throw our way, we would greatly appreciate it. And if you're already supporting us, we want to say a word of hearty thanks. For your support. We also want to acknowledge that there are more important things in the world than our silly podcast, much as it gives us great joy. Um, and so if there are uh, limited funds available to you, we think it's it's more important to, uh, to direct your resources to things that make a bigger difference in our world. A couple of our favorites are blacklivesmatter.com, communityjusticeexchange.org, and the Stop AAPI Hate GoFundMe. Thanks. That is right. All of those are worthwhile. Uh, things to look into. Uh, so, Emily, yes, do Kyle. you have deep dive guesses? Oh boy, do I! Um, are we talking about Zachary Taylor? We are not talking about Zachary Taylor. Okay, what about Gandhi? Ooh, that was my second choice. I, I actually, I'm looking at my list right now. It was up there, but no, I did not choose. Okay, second choice after the Mensheviks. Yeah. 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 Yes! I figured you'd, I, th- this one was more in my wheelhouse. I figured you'd get this mm-hmm. one. Yeah. There were a bunch of missed president questions, and I was like, really, any of those would make a fine biographical. But I, had, I, I thought the Mensheviks might be speaking to you as well. Yeah, it was the Miss Daily Double uh, yep. in the Tuesday game in the Russian history and culture category. The clue was, in the early 1900s, members of the faction that opposed Lenin were called these, meaning one of the minority. Katie had guessed who were the Bolsheviks, but that was Lenin's faction. These are the Mensheviks. So I'm going to talk, really, I'm just going to talk about the Russian Revolution. I've done, you know, the entire, like, czars of Russia up mm-hmm. to the Russian Revolution. So why not continue? It's kind of kind of how I figured it. So here we go. The Russian Revolution was a period of political and social revolution that took place in the former Russian Empire and began during the First World War. Uh, And it's really made up of two revolutions uh, that happened between uh, 1917 and really eventually 1923. But uh, 1917 and 1918 were the big years of it. So what 
began it in 1917 was called the February Revolution. That was focused in and around the uh, capital city of Petrograd, which we call St. Petersburg. In order to kind of get the idea of that, we need a little bit of background, right? I've gone through the the czars up to Nicholas II, although I didn't really talk much about the goings-on during their, uh, you know, particular reigns. So uh, Nicholas II, Romanov, was the last czar of Russia. He reigned from 1894 until 1917. Uh, so his reign lasted a good amount of time, and uh, a, a major event earlier on in his reign was the Russian Revolution of 1905. The reason it's called a revolution is because it was a uh, like a wave of protests and unrest uh, that brought in some significant changes, especially like the establishment of the first like Russian constitution, which established the Duma. It was the it was like the Russian Parliament. However, the way that the constitution worked with the Duma, Nicholas II didn't have to listen to them. <laughs> like, like they they didn't necessarily hold a, hold that much power when it came down to it. So that was kind of part of the part of the the issue going up was like there was supposed to be this democratic reform that didn't really end up having a lot of teeth. In addition to that, the Russian economy was undergoing a, a, a lot of stress, not only because of the rapid industrialization of Russia before the First World War, which caused overcrowding in, in urban uh, centers and poor conditions for industrial workers, as well as obviously World War One. So there were already issues leading up to World War One. Nicholas II was kind of out of touch, but he did have some sense that like, there were problems in Russia. There were a number of factions, not only the nobility, who were kind of displeased with him because, you know, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of those reasons being the prominence of Rasputin in the royal court. You know, in addition to that, the poor performance of Russia in the Russo-Japanese War, uh, the social unrest of, of the working class and all that. When war broke out in 1914, Nicholas II had the idea that like, oh, this is a superordinate goal. This is an external enemy, and this will cause national unity. Because the best way to gain national unity is to go to war with someone else, make someone mm. else the bad guy. And there was a like th that worked for a little bit, right? Like it it reduced the unrest at home. And early on uh, on the Russian front, on the Eastern front, uh, the Russians had some had some successes. However, the first major battle for Russia was the Battle of Tannenberg in 1914. 30,000 Russian troops were killed, 90,000 captured, and the Germans only suffered about 12,000. Or when the Russians went up against the Germans, the Russians lost badly pretty much every time. Uh, the Austro-Hungarians were, were able to be pushed back a little bit, and so, were there, like I said, there were some successes, but in 1915, uh, and basically from then on, the Russians just, like, couldn't do much. They didn't have the resources, they didn't have the training uh they didn't have the the weapons that the germans had the german army was just better in every way by the end of october 1916 russia had lost between 1,600,000 and 1,800,000 soldiers with an additional 2 million prisoners of war and 1 million missing so like a total of like 5 <laughs> million men lost yeah. in 2 years of war uh, uh, yeah mhm mm just just staggering numbers and so by by that point, the Russian army was in steady retreat, lots of desertion, uh, lots of mutiny. At home, the economy was being stretched because of the war demands 
uh, and, you know, lack of food, lack of resources. And so there were worker strikes going on in 1915. So basically everything was just going going really bad. And of course, Tsar Nicholas was blamed for all of these crises because that's what we do with leaders. What, you know, some of that was his fault, maybe a lot of it, but uh, it was all put on him. So we get to February of 1917. At the beginning of February, there were uh, a number of strikes and demonstrations on our March 7th, but if you use the old calendar, uh, the 22nd of February, workers at Putilov, which was Petrograd's largest industrial plant, uh, went on strike and the whole plant was closed. The next day, a series of meetings were held uh, for International Women's Day, but that kind of morphed into demonstrations and uh, further strikes uh, across Petrograd. And by the 10th of March, pretty much everything in Petrograd had been shut down. And students, white-collar workers, and teachers had joined the demonstrations. Uh, so the Tsar looked to the army to put down the demonstrations. However, the vast majority of the troops were untrained or injured that were in Petrograd. And uh, even the ones who were kind of like ready and able were hesitant to do anything because there were a lot of women in the uh, demonstrating groups. And also many of the soldiers were sympathetic to the cause. Um, so on March 11th, Nicholas ordered the army to suppress the rioters by force and the troops began to revolt. That very morning, Nicholas had prorogued the Duma, leaving it with no legal authority to act. So the Duma... They declared their own temporary committee to restore law and order. Uh, and meanwhile, the socialist parties established the Petrograd Soviet to represent workers and soldiers. And by March 14th, Nicholas was returning to Petrograd because he had been on the front. And uh, upon his return, it was suggested to him by the Duma deputies and the army chief that he abdicate the throne. So on the 15th of March, he did. Uh, he nominated his brother, Grand Duke Michael Alexandrovich, to succeed him. So, in a way, Alexandrovich was going, was like kind of the next czar. Uh, but the Grand Duke realized that that was not a good idea, so he declined. <laughs> mm -hmm. He said, unless it was the consensus of a democratic action. And that was essentially the end of the Romanov line of rulers and the end of the rule of czars. And so what happened after that was there was a, a like dual power situation. The provisional government, which was the, like previously the Duma, uh, was technically in charge. However, the Petrograd Soviet Council of Workers deputies uh, exerted a lot of pressure on the Duma. Their, their like stated purpose was to kind of be like a workers lobby uh, for the Duma or for the provisional government. Uh, but what really happened was a like a dual power uh, situation which was not tenable. The leader of the provisional government was Alexander Kerensky. He was a young and popular lawyer, a lawyer, member of the Socialist Revolutionary Party. And even though the war was very unpopular and not going well, Kerensky and the provisional government uh, authorized an, another offensive against the Germans, uh, but that one also did not work. And at that point, there were a number of mutinies and rebellions among the soldiers, which further like delegitimized the provisional government. So it's at this point that the Bolshevik Party, led by Vladimir Lenin, uh, really comes to the forefront. Lenin had been living in exile in Switzerland, but he was able to return. The Germans allowed him to cross the lines because they were like, hey, you can help 
us get Russia out of the war. As long as you don't get out of your train in Germany and try to start something here. So he agreed. They sealed his his uh, train car and he <laughs> went back to Russia. Because <laughs> he and the Bolsheviks saw this as an opportunity for the Marxist revolution. Once Lenin returned, the Bolsheviks gained a lot of popularity very, very quickly. And dissatisfaction with the provisional government continued, especially among workers, soldiers, and, and the peasants. So in June, the provisional government launched another attack against Germany that failed miserably. And there was a swift revolt in Petrograd among the workers, uh, calling for all power to the Soviets. However, Lenin and the Bolshevik leaders like disowned that revolt, and it quickly kind of dissipated. This is called the July Days which confirmed the popularity of the anti-war radical Bolsheviks, but the leaders were, like, unprepared to take power, and it kind of set them back for quite a while. In early September, the Petrograd Soviet freed all jailed Bolsheviks, and Leon Trotsky became chairman of the Petrograd Soviet. No growing numbers of socialists and lower-class Russians viewed the government less as a force in support of their needs and interests. And so the Bolsheviks benefited as the only major organized opposition party that had refused to compromise with the provisional government. And they benefited from growing frustration uh, with other parties like the Mensheviks and the socialist revolutionaries who stubbornly refused to break with the idea of national unity across all classes. Hmm. Lenin began pressing for the immediate overthrow of the Kerensky government by the Bolsheviks and the Bolshevik Central Committee drafted a resolution calling for the dissolution of the provisional government, uh, passed 10 to 2. The only two who voted against it were the two members of the provisional government in the Bolshevik party, <laughs> and this promoted the October Revolution. So the October Revolution lasted into November of 1917, as we call it, according to the modern Gregorian calendar, but they were still on the Julian calendar. It was organized by the Bolshevik party, Liberal and monarchist forces loosely organized into the White Army, which is referred to as like the Mensheviks were like the white Russians. Uh, they went to war against the Bolsheviks' Red Army, and this became known as the Russian Civil War. In early 1918, these forces butted heads, and the Allies sent troops in 1918 to aid the whites, with, or at least they sent uh, troops and supplies uh, to help the white Russians because they wanted Russia to remain in the war on the side of the Allies, and the Bolsheviks were very clearly stating that they were anti-war. Uh, so the provisional government was led by the uh, right-wing Socialist Revolutionary Party, and it, this provisional government was not elected, so uh, it did not sit well with the, the people. So eventually the Bolsheviks uh, assumed power in Petrograd and then expanded their rule outward especially pointing toward Moscow. Lenin initially said that both Petrograd and Moscow needed to fall at the same time, which it was fairly easy to because there was popular support in all of the major population centers. Uh, during this time, revolutionary tribunals were set up to try cases of counter-revolution ideology. This was not as like as brutal as like the reign of terror kind of tribunals, but it mm -hmm. still was pretty arbitrary as to what was counter-revolutionary. But yeah, it was on the, on the part of the Bolsheviks as well. In July, 1918, the Bolsheviks executed the Tsar and his family. That was July 16, 1918. The, after the October revolution and the Bolsheviks took over, that was kind of the end of the revolution as a whole, like, like as a major thing, like Lenin had, assumed power as the leader of the Bolshevik party, the Bolsheviks were in charge of the government, and thus the, the establishment of the Soviet Union began. 
The revolution ultimately led to the establishment of the future Soviet Union over the, the, the coming six or so years into the 1920s. And I think I'm going to leave it there. Okay. Well, that was helpful because this is a, this is a part of history where I get very um, lost. Sure. <laughs> Truth be told. <laughs> so this was, this was very helpful in helping me uh, get that sorted out. So thank you. You're very welcome. And uh, are you ready for a quiz? I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm ready for a quiz. Let's go. Let's have a quiz. Okay. This quiz is called You Say You Want a Revolution. It's Uh, about revolutions, revolts, and rebellions. So the first question. When we talk about revolutions, there is one year in particular that must be remembered in European history. Also known as the Springtime of Nations or Springtime of the Peoples, this one year saw revolutionary movements all over the continent, including but not limited to the Italian states, German states, Ireland, Ukraine, Hungary, France, and Poland. Over in the very politically stable U.S., gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill, and in England, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels published the Communist Manifesto. Which year am I talking about? I don't know it right off the top of my head. I am trying to narrow it down. There are some. There are a couple of different things here that I thought of as having particular years, and the years don't match up. So, the one that I'm really confident about is that the gold rush is 1849, and I think 1848 matches up with a lot of this. I'm going with 1848. Oh, that is good, because it is 1848. Yay! Nice, yes. The the revolutions of 1848, like that, that year in particular, there is just a massive wave across Europe of revolutionary movements. Mm -hmm. Many of those movements were successful in 1848. And then after the aristocracy and monarchies who had been kind of pushed aside, uh, managed to like get their act together. uh, Those revolutions did not necessarily stick in 1849 and 1850. Mm -hmm. Some of them did. Many of them did not. Yep. But yeah, 1848 was a, a big revolutionary year. Nice. Yeah. Well done. The thing the thing that tripped me up is, like, when you said France, like, my brain is like, 1789! I'm like, nope, 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 stop. That doesn't match everything else. No, this was the establishment of yes. the yeah, no, no, Second no, no. Republic, Third Republic, I don't know, whatever republic it was. Yes, I vaguely remember that. Yeah. Um, nice. So you're up to 20 points after two correct answers, one being, what are we talking about? <laughs> uh, next question. The Industrial Revolution was, simply put, the establishment of machine manufacturing and factory work in the cities of Europe and the U.S. It is often considered to span from the 1760s to the 1840s-ish. However, certain advancements later in the 19th century are sometimes referred to as the Second Industrial Revolution. This mostly began with the ability to mass-produce what material thanks to Sir Henry Bessemer's process of converting pig iron? Um, Bessemer makes me think bessemer steel so i'm gonna say steel and that is what it is bessemer steel indeed the bessemer process well done yeah you're up to 30 points all right next question question three one type of revolution is a revolution from without meaning an outside force comes in and forces regime change or social upheaval The mid-1960s saw an event like that in the United States, led by groups such as the Beatles, the Who, 
and the Rolling Stones. What is the term for that musical revolution? Um, I mean, the term that's coming to mind is British invasion. I'm going to go with that. And that's a good thing because it is the <laughs> British invasion. Nice. Yay. Well done. Like, yes. Is it supposed to be something more complicated than that? Uh, no, okay, no, it's right, just yay. that. It's the British invasion. Yeah. I know things. Change the landscape of popular music in the United States. There have been other musical revolutions. Mm -hmm. Probably, maybe the most important one now, of course, being like the the emergence of hip hop and sampling and rap into popular music. Anyway, that's a that's a different, I don't know, entire podcast. All right, so you're perfect so far. Forty points on three questions. Question four: The Third Servile War was a slave uprising in the Roman Empire. Easily the most important impact of this rebellion was making Stanley Kubrick direct a film that he did not have sole artistic control over. What is the name of that film which also starred an actor whose birth name was Isser Danielovich? Oh, no. Um, all right. Kubrick. My brain helpful, keeps helpfully suggesting things that are obviously not the correct option, like Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> no, no, stop. Stop it, brain. Yes, I know. I know it's a Kubrick film. Have you considered The Shining? Uh, what about a clockwork orange? <laughs> no, it's not a clockwork orange. There, there are two names coming to mind. This is a thing that I get mixed up all the time. Spartacus and Claudius. And I think we've had a quiz question about I, Claudius, and it was definitely not a Kubrick question. So I'm going to say Spartacus. Wow, that is a that is a way to get to it. But yes, As, it is Spartacus. <laughs> we take the we take the scenic route. Yeah, really. Who? Yes, but yes. Uh yeah, Stanley Kubrick directed Spartacus. Uh he was not the original director, but the original director was was removed after like a week of filming but it's like the only film that kubrick wasn't in charge of that he's ever made and yes uh kirk douglas's original name is isser danielovich i'm googling now because i think part of what has got me all mixed up about claudius and spartacus is the the line i am spartacus and the title i comma claudius Claudius. yeah that makes sense Oh, brains are so weird. They are. But hey, you're f- five for four right now. So All right. way to go. Question five. As stated, two of the major parties during the Russian Revolution were the Bolsheviks or the Reds and the Mensheviks or the Whites. When converted to a potent potable, how would one mix up a Menshevik or White Russian? Even though the drink wasn't documented until 1949. I'll give you three points per ingredient. And an extra point if you get all three for a total of ten. One should be obvious because Russia. One should be obvious because white. And the other one might make sense because Trotsky? I mean, I'm not sure what... Well? Okay. A white Russian is vodka, Kahlua, and cream or milk. Yeah, that, that's correct, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it is It is those three things. It is vodka, Kahlua, and cream, heavy cream. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought the vodka would be obvious because it's Russian, right? Yeah. Heavy cream because it's white. And Kahlua mm-hmm. is 
uh, it's a coffee liqueur and it's produced in Mexico. And I'm like, the closest thing I can, the closest connection I can make is that Trotsky went to Mexico when he was exiled. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know where the Kahlua comes in. I, it's a, huh. that's a straight, I, yeah, maybe somebody knows the origin and they can help me out there, but Hey, you got that too. So you have 60 points, the maximum going into final and the final category is American history. Uh Oh, I don't know any of that. Now I, I know a little bit. It seems like I'd better just wager it all. Go right. I mean, it. how many, how many times do we get the chance to get the absolute maximum? Yeah. Not very many. Yeah. Okay. For 120 points. The uprising known as Shays' Rebellion is often seen as one of the major catalysts for the Constitutional Convention. It occurred in 1786 and 87, preceded by protests against court proceedings and unfair taxation and debt policies. Those protests shut down or attempted to shut down courts in Springfield, Northampton, and some other town that I think we've mentioned once or twice. Daniel Shea led a group of farmers and agricultural workers taking arms against the government of what state? Okay. Well, Springfield and Northampton are certainly cities in Massachusetts. Um, there may also be spring. Uh, there certainly are other Springfields, and there may be other Northamptons. And there was a part of me that wanted to, as soon as you said Shays Rebellion, wanted to think New Hampshire or Vermont. But I think I'm going to follow the cities and say Massachusetts. That's a good choice because it is Massachusetts. Yes! Ah! Well done. 20 points. 120 points. Congratulations. By the way, that other town that I think we've mentioned once or twice that they uh, shut down the courts of is Worcester. Ah, which you left out because it's my hometown. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. That's why we've mentioned it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Springfield and Northampton are um, a little bit further west. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. But, uh. Shays Rebellion is interesting. I I remember learning about it like briefly in American history because it's like, but, but we spent like you know a day or two on like the whole Articles of Confederation time, and then it's like, and then we got the Constitution, and then it, real America started. Huh. But it's actually like Shays Rebellion is a pretty interesting series of events mm, uh, yeah. dealing with the economy of you know this new country and the conflict between like agricultural communities and merchant communities and how like it's very interesting mm-hmm. so well how about that emily 120 points yay well this was this was great fun um, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you kyle uh, for a great deep dive and a and a great quiz um and thank you listeners for spending your time with us make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts Leave a rating or a review if you would be so kind. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who watch Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back with you uh, next week for another week of the Professor's Tournament. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. 